Did Jesus really rise from the dead? And if he did, is this just something that Christians have to accept uh, by blind faith? Is there evidence for Jesus rising from the dead? Uh, this is what we're going to talk about in today's edition of Theology Thursday. Thank you for joining me again. Um, we are going to dive into uh, a, a topic that's more apologetics in flavor than just theology. Uh, now, apologetics is it's not apologizing for our faith. Apologetics is defending our faith. It is giving a rational defense for, the, for our belief that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross for our sins, and he rose again from the grave. Uh, and so when we dive into this really, really important topic, uh, we have to remember, anytime we talk about apologetics, we talk about arguments and evidence, we have to remember that no one is going to heaven through arguments or debates or even evidence. What makes us right with God, what pushes somebody to faith in Jesus is, the Bible says, the Word of God and the Holy Spirit opening a sinner's heart to see the truth. That's what brings faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Um, what apologetics can do, uh, for sure, is build up the faith of believers, uh, edify and build us up and help us have more confidence in our faith. Uh, and I think there's even some benefit to apologetics to non-believers. I think it can help it can help move away some of the fog. You know, sometimes people don't believe in God or Jesus or the Bible, and they have, uh, they have reasons for that that just are pretty flimsy. And I think apologetics can serve to say, uh, wait, you believe this? Well, that's not true. This is why that's not true. And then maybe we can brush that fog away so that that person can come face to face with Jesus, because that's what we really want. Uh, we want people to, to lose all of their excuses and come face to face with the Savior of the world. Uh, and so today, with all that being said, we're going to look at the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is a historical figure. He's a real person. He's not a fairy tale. He lived, he walked, he died. And there is evidence, there, is, there are facts about his life. And we're going to examine them today. And when we start to talk about Jesus, when we start to talk about, even when we talk about our faith to other people, I think we need to take an apple pie approach. Now, what in the world does that mean? Um, Carl Sagan has a really interesting quotation. Uh, Carl Sagan, not a friend of, of Christianity necessarily, uh, but he said this, If you wish to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. What, a, what an intriguing sentence. Uh, what does he mean by that? Well, he means if you're going to bake an apple pie, uh, one way to look at it is you have to first create the universe. And then you have to create the solar system. And then you have to create planet Earth. And then you have to create land. And you have to create plants. And you have to create apple trees. And you have to create sugar. And you have to create an apple on that tree. And you have to create people who are hungry and people who like apple pies. And then you have to invent the oven. And then you have to bring fire into the mix. And you have to learn how to make it. And then you can finally make your apple pie. That is a bad way to make an apple pie. Just make the pie. And that is a bad way, in my opinion, to talk to people about our faith. And that is not a way that we are going to examine the cross. 
What we want to do when we're talking to someone about our faith or when we're examining the evidence for the resurrection, we want to start with the ingredients. You don't have to start with everything else. I think believers, uh, I think as believers, when we talk to our atheist friends or our agnostic friends, um, we, we, we are tempted to start with the universe, to start with things that don't really affect the apple pie. Sometimes we, we, we want to share our faith and we start with evolution or age of the earth or social issues like traditional marriage or abortion or we start with politics or we start with inerrancy of scripture. All these important topics. Sometimes we start with those instead of getting to the apple pie. So my recommendation to you in your evangelism and sharing your faith is get to the apple pie. Get to Jesus. Oh, you, you believe in evolution, or you believe in this age of the earth, or you believe in this social issue. Uh, that's fine. I don't want to talk about that. Let's talk about Jesus. What do you believe about Jesus? All that other stuff will come. Figuring out that other stuff will come if we can get them to Jesus and if the Holy Spirit brings faith, then that other stuff is, is up for grabs. But right now, get to the apple pie. And in the same way, what we're going to do today is we're going to take the ingredients we need for our apple pie. We're going to take the ingredients, the facts about the resurrection, and we're going to examine them together. Let's get to the apple pie. This approach is called the minimal facts approach. The minimal facts approach. Um, this, uh, this approach focuses on three types of facts about the resurrection of Jesus. The first type of facts, we want to know what's knowable. Okay, what does that mean? We want to know the facts that we can actually know. We don't want to speculate. We want to know what we can know. For instance, when Jesus was being tried okay, at his trial, can we know what the fourth guard from the left had for breakfast? No, nobody wrote about him. We don't know his name. We don't know who he was. We don't know if there was a fourth guard. We don't know if he liked Captain Crunch or Tutti Fruities. We don't know any of that. We can't know any of that. Okay? What we can know is whose tomb was Jesus buried in? We can know that. There's evidence for that. There are facts about that. So we're going to take facts that are knowable. We're going to take facts that are needed. If we're going to examine the evidence for the resurrection, there are facts that we need and there are facts that we don't need. Do we need to know what the fourth guard from the left at Jesus' trial, what, do we need to know what he liked for breakfast? No, we don't need to know that. We don't need to know. We don't need to know if he was a Pop-Tart guy or if he was an eggs guy. We don't need to know that when we examine the evidence for the resurrection. So we're going to take for our apple pie ingredients of knowable facts. We're going to take necessary, we're going to take needed facts to examine the resurrection. And then, would it be, wouldn't it be nice if we could ask, we know that there are men and women, brilliant men and women, all over the planet in universities, uh, big and small, who are committed to studying the New Testament, and studying the resurrection for their careers. Wouldn't it be nice if we could examine what the experts, what scholars believe? 
Wouldn't it be nice if for our apple pie we could take facts that are accepted by scholars all over the world from any background? Wouldn't that be nice? And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to take noble, needed, and we're going to take only facts that are accepted. We're going to take only facts that are accepted by the men and women who study this on a regular basis for a living. That's what we're going to do. This approach was catapulted into the world by Dr. Gary Habermas. Uh, as a believer, uh, he wrote his dis doctoral dissertation on this exact thing, uh, evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. He wrote it in a secular university. Could you imagine uh, the tension there of writing about evidence for the resurrection to become a doctor? There's a lot at stake there. Uh, and so what he did, what Dr. Habermas did for his dissertation, he said, I want to examine, I want to know this. I want to know what scholars really believe about the facts of the resurrection. And so Dr. Gary Habermas has committed his life in many ways to examining what the academic world believes about the facts of the resurrection. So, and this was years ago when I first dove into this, so these numbers have grown. Uh, so Dr. Gary Habermas has examined 3,400 plus sources written by, by scholars all over the world about the resurrection of Jesus. So he's, if, if, they, if they write about the resurrection, he reads it and he catalogs it. He writes down what they believe about these facts. Isn't that amazing? Um, he's done this for 35 plus years. At this point, it might be 40 years. He's done this for a long, long time. He's examined sources in English, French, and German. Uh, important languages for the academic world. I could barely speak English, so you kind of understand how smart these people are. Um, and this is what he's done. Not only 3,400 sources for 35 years, English, French, and German, not just Christians. He examined no matter what their worldview. So these are sources from every worldview. Listen, Jesus was the most important man who ever lived, most influential man who ever lived. The resurrection was the most important event about Jesus' worldly life. And therefore, people from all over the world, from every background, find Jesus fascinating and find the resurrection important. And so there are many atheist scholars who study the New Testament for life, for, for, for their career, for their livelihood. And so he examined all of these things and he came up with the minimal facts approach. What is knowable, what's needed, and what is accepted. And so let's take a look at these facts together. So the first fact that we're going to examine this way about the resurrection of Jesus, the first fact is Jesus was crucified and buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. It's the first fact. Now, you might be surprised about all these statements. It surprised me when I learned it for the first time. But Gary Habermas, in his examination, says that this fact, Jesus died, was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, this fact is accepted by virtually all New Testament scholars. Virtually all. What percentage are we talking about there, Gary? Uh, he says 90 conservatively, 95 plus is probably more accurate. So if you are a scholar 
in the world who studies the resurrection, this fact is virtually guaranteed to be accepted by you. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Don't let anybody tell you that Jesus was probably a myth, that he was a legend. No one believes that. No one who studies the Bible, who studies the New Testament, who studies history, believes that. If they do, they're kind of kooky. Okay? Isn't that amazing? Why is this so well attested? Well, we have early, independent, and multiple sources that tell us Jesus died on the cross and he was buried in Joseph's tomb. Now, where do these facts come from? I'll be right back. Well, we like to think sometimes that this is just one book, and it is, and it is inspired, inerrant, it is authoritative, it is supernatural, all those things are true, but this is also history. Okay? This is not just one book, this is 66 books, this is 66 letters and books and poems and all these things uh, written about our God by our God. And so when scholars examine this book, they don't just see one book, they see 66 pieces of evidence. And so when scholars examine the evidence for the resurrection, they take this book and they say, wow, we have this fact attested by multiple sources, early sources, and independent sources, sources different from each other. For instance, 1 Corinthians 15, phenomenal passage. Paul quotes an early, early, early Christian creed. A creed is what we believe. And in that creed is this first minimal fact about the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, the information there was written by Paul, an early believer who we're going to talk about in a moment. Uh, and he is, is using this early Christian creed. Now, Jesus died somewhere 30 to 33 AD. We're not exactly sure. This early information was created between 30 and 36 AD. Maybe months after Jesus died and rose again. Maybe a couple of years after Jesus died and rose again. Why is that important? Well, in a historical context, that is a that is that length of time is separated by a breath. There's no time for uh, someone to make something up. There's no time for lies. There's no time for exaggeration. This happened a month ago, and this is what we believe. Why is that so important? Well, if if this is a lie, we got. Hundreds of people who will call you out on it. And so that's why 1 Corinthians 15 is so important for the evidence of our faith. you got things like Mark. I mean, you have, you have all kinds of uh, early independent multiple sources. That's why this is so well accepted. Another reason, there is no competing story for where Jesus was buried. We've got one story. You don't have one story here, and then the Pharisees came up with one story here. No, you've got one story. One explanation for where Jesus was buried. And we know who Joseph of Arimathea was. It wasn't a random tomb. This man, Joseph of Arimathea, was rich. He was wealthy. He was powerful. He was well known. People knew where his tomb was. He, he had this tomb picked out for himself. This was his. So they knew where he was. They knew where Jesus was buried. And here's another, here's another thing to think about. This is so well attested because Joseph of Arimathea was part of the Jewish leadership who got Jesus killed. 
He was part of that group. If you're going to invent a story about Jesus being buried, you're, and you're not going to make an enemy the hero. It's, not, it's very unlikely you're going to do that. And so all these reasons and more mean virtually all scholars believe that this fact is true about Jesus. It leads John A.T. Robinson of Cambridge University to say this, the burial of Jesus in the tomb is one of the earliest and best attested facts about Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Fact number two, on the Sunday morning following the burial of Jesus, the tomb was found empty. This fact is accepted by the vast majority of New Testament scholars. So why is this so well accepted? Well, the historicity of this part helps us understand this part. Joseph's tomb. We knew where Joseph's tomb was. They knew where Joseph's tomb was. It wasn't a random place. They're not just walking around. They don't just forget where they laid him. They knew where he was. There's a location. It's a prominent location. They knew whose tomb it was. They knew where it was. Why do we believe that the empty tomb, what's one of the reasons that the evidence is so great for the empty tomb? If you are the enemy of Christianity and you've got, you've, you thought you killed this guy, Jesus, he's finally wiped out, but his disciples are crazy people. They start saying that Jesus rose from the dead and then they start gaining popularity and the, these Christians are speaking out against you and you're losing power. And what's, what are you going to do? What's the first thing that you're going to do? They say that Jesus rose from the dead. I'm going to go get his corpse, drag it through the streets of Jerusalem, put this thing to bed once and for all. He rose from the dead. Well, his dead body says otherwise. They didn't do that. They didn't do that. Why didn't they do that? Because the tomb was empty. Forget everything else for a second. The tomb was empty. That fact is accepted by the vast majority of biblical scholars. The empty tomb is attested by multiple early independent sources. 1 Corinthians 15, the book of Mark. The story of the empty tomb lacks the traditional embellishment of most religious ancient works. In fact, we have a forgery written hundreds of years after Jesus' death and resurrection called the Gospel of Peter um, that talks about this exact event, and its embellishment is crazy. It talks about a huge crowd gathered outside the tomb. A voice rings out from the tomb. The tombstone rolls away on its own. Two men enter the tomb from heaven, and then two men exit so tall that their heads are in the clouds. And a third man exits, and he's even taller than that. And finally, we have coming out from the tomb a walking and talking cross. That's what we expect to see from an invented religious story. That's not what we have. In fact, you read the book of Mark, and I mean, there's an angel there, but it's all pretty pedestrian, especially in comparison to that. That adds, that adds to the evidence, to the, the, the quality of the evidence for the empty tomb. Another reason that we believe in the empty tomb, women discovered the empty tomb. Ladies, I'm sorry, um, your voice was not accepted in the ancient world. Your testimony was not accepted in court. Uh, they would rather, almost rather, believe a thief than believe a woman of great character. 
And so if you're inventing a story of an empty tomb, you're not going to have a woman discover the empty tomb. That was hard enough, I'm sure, on evangelism 2,000 years ago to say, hey, how do you know the tomb was empty? Well, the women saw it. That'd be hard enough. If you're looking to spread your religion, gain power, gain influence, whatever you were thinking you were doing with your invented empty tomb, you're not going to have the women discover it. You might have Joseph of Arimathea discover it. You might have Peter discover it. You're not going to have women. You're not going to have women. And finally, why do we believe this? Well, it's good. At, there's great evidence to believe the empty tomb because the enemies of Christianity, that was what they said. Do you remember what the Pharisees said? Uh, the disciples must have stole the body. Well, that's crazy in its own right. They, would, they wouldn't do that. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, but they didn't say, what are, you, what are you talking about? The body's right over there in this tomb. Let's go see it. They didn't say that. Why didn't they say that? Remember, forget everything else for now. Why didn't they say that? Because the tomb was empty. This led Jacob Kramer an Austrian specialist in the resurrection to say this, by far, most scholars hold firmly to the biblical statements concerning the empty tomb. Habermas says the vast majority of scholars accept the evidence of the empty tomb. Fact number three. On multiple occasions, this is the one that blew me away when I heard it for the first time. On multiple occasions and under various circumstances, different individuals and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus alive after his death. These are called the post-mortem appearances of Jesus. Virtually, how many, who, how many, maybe a couple or maybe just Christians believe this? No. Habermas says virtually all scholars accept this as fact. I was blown away when I heard that for the first time. Now, why do, we, why, do they, why do virtually all believe this? Well, it's in early, it's in, uh, early, um, early sources, multiple sources. If you're a historian and you have these good sources from the New Testament, you have to come to the conclusion that they saw something. Now, these, these scholars, if they're atheists, they don't believe that it was really Jesus raised from the dead, or they'd be Christians. They have to come up with other, other reasons, or they just say, well, I don't know. We know. And so this fact that the 11, those are the disciples, plus one, James, plus one, Paul, plus 500 believers, saw Jesus raised from the dead. Post-mortem appearances. Why so well accepted? Like we said, sources, list of eyewitnesses, Peter, James, Paul, the other 11, the 500. Go ask them. I'm writing this account. Go ask them if it's true. This guy... What adds to the evidence? This guy, James, was a skeptic. Remember James? James is the brother of Jesus. James, on two occasions, came to get Jesus because they thought he was crazy. They're going to put him in the loony bin. And yet, James becomes a believer, a leader of the church in Jerusalem, claims to see Jesus raised from the dead. This guy is an enemy. Who is this? This is Paul, an enemy of Christianity, killing believers in Jesus. He's the last person that wants to see Jesus raised from the dead. And yet this man, Paul, one of the most brilliant minds who've ever lived, this man 
claims to see Jesus raised from the dead, becomes a believer, dies for his belief. So, this evidence and more has led Gert Ludman, a great New Testament critic of the resurrection, or critic of Christianity, says this, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Our faith is not blind. These are historical events that happened. It's amazing. And finally, so they, they see this fact of the resurrection, virtually all scholars. Finally, Fact, the last fact of our apple pie, despite every cultural inclination, religious worldview, personal history, and with little regard to personal safety, the disciples, the believers, Paul, an enemy, and James, a skeptic, believed in the resurrection. Virtually all scholars accept it as fact that these men believed in the resurrection of Jesus. Why is this so well accepted? Their leader was dead. And then they still believed. Why is this so well accepted? Why is this not just an invention of their mind? Well, their worldview did not have space for the conception of a dead Messiah. Jews at the time didn't, under, didn't understand the prophecies and as we have uh, the benefit of, of the Old Testament and the New Testament, as Jesus opens our eyes to all those things, uh, we know that the Messiah was prophesied to die. The popular Jewish conception of the Messiah at the time and now is that the Messiah wouldn't die. Much less die, the Messiah wouldn't be hung on a cross. Deuteronomy says, cursed is anyone who's hung on a cross. Now we know that's true, that Jesus took the curse for us. But they wouldn't invent this. They had no space for that. They had no space for the idea that someone would be resurrected before the end of time. They thought there was going to be one resurrection at the end of the age. But Jesus was resurrected now. So they didn't have reason to invent this. This is not something that they would invent. This leads virtually all scholars to believe that this, they actually, they literally believe that Jesus rose from the dead. This gave rise to Christianity. This is why Christians exist, because they believe that Jesus rose from the dead. N.T. Wright, noted New Testament scholar, says, As a historian, I cannot explain the rise of Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind. Luke Johnson, New Testament scholar from Emory University, says, Some sort of powerful, transformative experience is required to generate the sort of movement earliest Christianity was. What could transform them in such a way to leave behind their worldview that was so ingrained in their minds from a very early age? What could, what could, what could do that? Seeing the bloody body of Jesus on the cross, seeing the spear come into his heart and blood and water flow out, burying him in the tomb, having no question that he was dead, and then seeing him physically raised from the dead. That's what transforms them. And that's what transforms us. These early Christians believed and they died for the resurrection. People die for all kinds of things. People die for things that are untrue, but people do not die for a lie. 
People don't die for a lie. Something that they know is not true. So, here are four minimal facts. How do we explain these things? How do we explain the evidence? What explains this? Well, there are three almost universally rejected naturalistic explanations. So if you're not a Christian, if you don't want the if the, you don't want the answer to be, well, Jesus did all these things. He rose from the dead. He is God. If you don't want that to be the answer, here's, here's three choices. Uh, the hallucination theory. This is the idea that the people who claim to see Jesus only hallucinated him. The 11, the 1, the 1, the 500, this was a, an hallucination. What, does, that, does that explain all the facts? Well, it doesn't even explain this one. Um, doesn't explain this one. If they hallucinated Jesus, what are you going to do? Go see the tomb. Are you telling me all these people experienced a hallucination and none of them were skeptical, none of them went to see the tomb? You're telling me that the enemies of Jesus, after this sect was growing in popularity and taking people out of your religion and you're losing power, they're not going to go look at the empty tomb? It doesn't explain the empty tomb. It doesn't even explain the post-mortem appearances. That's not how hallucinations work. They don't hop from person to person. Hallucinations are totally inward. They happen in your mind. Hallucinations also happen only to particular types of people. The ultra-paranoid, the schizophrenic, those who are under the influence of drugs. Does that explain the disciples? No, not at all. All kinds of people saw Jesus after his resurrection. Different ages, occupations, backgrounds, viewpoints, believers, skeptics, and enemies. Habermas says that these different individuals in each of these circumstances would all be candidates for hallucinations really stretches the limits of credibility. This doesn't make sense. People do not share hallucinations. Dr. Peter Kraft, King's College, Boston College, says this, Hallucinations usually happen only once except to the insane. This one returned many times to ordinary people. 500 separate Elvis sightings may be dismissed, but if 500 simple fishermen in Maine saw, touched, and talked with Elvis at once in the same town, that would be a different matter. Dr. Michael Lacona, hallucinations are like dreams. They are private occurrences. Can't share a dream. Can't share hallucinations. So hallucination theory does not explain the evidence. How about the conspiracy theory? This is what the Pharisees said. The earliest attack on Christianity. They just stole the body. It was just a great, great, um, it was, it was a great conspiracy. Well, does it explain the post-mortem appearances that virtually all scholars say they had experience with Jesus? It doesn't explain that. Does it explain the empty tomb? Kind of. Kind of. Does it explain that they genuinely believed? No. It doesn't explain that. Doesn't explain the rise of Christianity. It doesn't explain the genuine beliefs of early Christianity. Why? Out of the Hundreds of people that had to be in on this conspiracy. We didn't have one person step up and say it's false. It's fake. You already had a follower of Jesus give Jesus up for 30 pieces of silver. 
You don't imagine that the enemies of Christianity would love for somebody to come and call it false and call it fake? The larger the conspiracy, the harder it is to cover it up. Chuck Colson was a special counsel to President Nixon during the Watergate investigation, the Watergate scandal in the 60s. He says this, I know how impossible it is for a group of people, even some of the most powerful people in the world, to maintain a lie. The Watergate cover-up lasted only a few weeks before the first conspirator broke and turned in to the state. Amazing. The enemies would persecute these believers and seek to uncover the conspiracy. The disciples, James and Paul, their character that we see in the New Testament, don't match liars, conspirators, and greedy people. Conspiracies need motives. What was their motive? Was it sex? No, we read in the New Testament that they were men who, who were committed to their wives, committed to chastity before marriage, all those things. We read that, it doesn't fit with them. Are they after money? No, all these men died poor. Are they after power? Think about this, Christian. Are they after power? These men who wrote the New Testament, they couldn't even get their own churches to follow what they said. They're not after power. Are they after safety? No, they all died for believing in the resurrection. They received none of these things. There's no motive to be a conspirator. Paul Little says this, men will die, so all these, the, the 11 certainly died. 11, James and Paul, 500, we don't know the 500, how they ended up, but Paul Little says this, men will die for what they believe to be true, though it may actually be false. They do not, however, die for what they know is a lie. Conspiracy theory doesn't answer our apple pie, doesn't answer the theories, or doesn't answer the evidence. Finally, the swoon theory. It's the last one. The swoon theory. This says that Jesus was on the cross, but He didn't die. What doesn't this explain? Well, it kind of explains the empty tomb. Maybe Jesus was in there and He came out. It sort of, but not really, explains this. But it certainly doesn't explain this. Why not? The Romans were too good at killing people. In fact, you put somebody on the cross and you take them down and they're not dead, you go up in their place, Roman soldier. You're not going to make a mistake. If you don't believe that Jesus died on the cross, you have to reject the evidence that they stabbed them in the side with a spear. Think about all these things that happened to Jesus. You tell me this guy didn't really die. Jesus was beaten during his, his trials. He was scourged. You know what that means? You get whipped to the point where your skin is ripped off, exposing bone and guts. You had the crown of thorns on your head, causing you to bleed even more. You were scourged, and then you had a purple robe put on your back, and it conge all the blood and nastiness congeals together, and so it becomes your new skin. And then somebody rips it off before they put you on the cross. You have nails through your hands and your feet. He was buried in a cold tomb. He was wrapped tightly. He had no medical attention for three days. If he would have survived, he would have had no medical attention for three days. Josephus is an ancient Jewish historian during this time, or a little bit later. Uh, Josephus had a friend who was crucified and immediately pulled down off the cross. So he's crucified, immediately pulled down alive, given intense medical attention, and that man still died. 
Jesus goes three days without medical attention. And then you're telling me, so Jesus, if you, if you believe this theory, then Jesus had all this stuff happen to him. He's in the tomb. He somehow gets out of his, his linens. He comes up to this huge rock and he's able with, with scars, scarred hands, holes in his hands and his feet and his back still gone. And he pushes the stone away and he does something with the Roman soldiers. Maybe he fights them. I don't know in this state. And then he, he goes the miles to find his disciples on the walk to Jerusalem. He comes to them and he says, behold, my glorious resurrection body. And then they think, wow, you did rise from the dead. What are they going to think? Dude, you need a hospital. Your guts are hanging out on the floor. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. It doesn't, doesn't explain this, doesn't explain this, barely explains this. And here's the question. If Jesus didn't really die, where did he go? Let's pretend for a minute all these amazing things that we just talked about that would have to happen for him not to die on the cross actually happens. Where did he go? He would have stayed and started the church and took power. Who knows what he would have done? But he wouldn't have just disappeared, would he? For all those reasons, swoon theory shouldn't be taken seriously. Here are two theories to show how difficult it is to find an explanation to, complete, to compete with the Christian explanation of what happened. Uh, a few scholars, not many, but, a, but one or two scholars have these theories. Somebody said, I look at the evidence. I can't deny the evidence. So I have to come up with a theory that explains this because I'm not a Christian. Uh, a scholar says it's aliens. Jesus was an alien. If you're at the point where you have to blame aliens, I mean, you're long gone. Uh, William Lane Craig, one of the uh, preeminent Christian apologists, debaters, amazing. He debated a man who believed that Jesus had a twin brother. So I can't, I can't explain away the facts. These are facts. I have to do something. I'm not a Christian. I'm going to say Jesus had a twin brother. For a lot of reasons, that's, I mean, James, why would James, the skeptic, come to Christianity? He'd say, you're not Jesus resurrected. You're, you're Joe Schmo, my other brother. You know, I mean, just, but you see the lengths that people have to go if they try to explain it in another way. So what explains, what explanation best explains all the evidence? The classic Christian belief that Jesus was who he said he is. He died on the cross and rose again because he's the son of God. That explains all the evidence. Explains him dying. Explains him being buried in the Joseph's tomb. Explains the empty tomb. Explains the post-mortem appearances and explains the rise of Christianity. Explains it all. It matches with other well-known facts about Jesus. It matches what Jesus said about himself, that he was going to die. He was going to come back. It matches that. It matches what else we see in the New Testament. It matches the prophecies of the Old Testament. It matches the miracle claims. All these things, these extra things that we have in the New Testament about Jesus fit with the classical Christian explanation of the evidence. It fits. It's the only one that, it's the only theory that does. And so seeing all of this, what are you going to face as a Christian trying to share the good news of Jesus' resurrection with your family and friends? I don't think you're going to get the swoon theory. Maybe you do, but you're probably not. I don't think you're going to get the hallucination theory. I don't think you're going to get the conspiracy theory. And if you do, there's some great answers for you. I think what you're going to get, I think you're going to get two things. I think you're going to get agnostics 
who say, I'm agnostic about the resurrection. I don't know. I don't know. Everybody has to make a decision about Jesus. And saying, I don't know, is making a decision. So if, it's, if they're agnostic about it, love them, share with them uh, the good news, be in relationship with them, show them what a, what a believer's life looks like, show them repentance, show them all these things, be with them for the long haul. But what you might hear more often than not is this. You share with them the resurrection, people say, well, people just don't raise from the dead. People just don't rise from the dead. What's our response to that? That's the whole point. That's the point. Listen, we're not saying that people naturally rise from the dead. We're saying that one man supernaturally rose from the dead. Listen, if a, if a dead body rose every second Thursday, we would never have heard of Jesus. And that's the point. So yes, people don't rise from the dead. And that's why this evidence is so amazing, because one person did. And he told us he was going to, and he did rise from the dead. And he says that you can have a resurrection of your own. Well, you will have a resurrection of your own. All will be raised in the end by Jesus. Some to an eternity apart from God in hell. Some will be raised to an eternity of everlasting life with Jesus. We love you. I hope this has been helpful. I hope this has built your faith. Maybe you're here and you're watching this and you're not a believer. Uh, maybe this has helped uh, straighten some things out. Maybe my hope is that if you're not a believer, that you see Jesus even more clearly now. And you see the evidence laid before you. But as we said in the beginning, this evidence is not going to push you into faith in Jesus. What it's going to take, I would encourage you, open the Word of God. Read the book of Mark. Read the book of Mark. See the evidence for yourself. Pray that God opens your heart. And I hope that that happens for you. I pray that that happens for you. We love you. Thank you for spending time with me. I'll see you next time.